Good to be with you. Good to have friends amongst us and uh, appreciate, uh, thankful for all of our visitors as well. And if this is your first time and you're new to Bethany, we do encourage you to, after worship, uh, stick around with us. We love to uh, get to know you and to see how we can minister to you and help you in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you to turn with me as we continue in worship in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we pick up in this miracle Jesus has performed at the pool of Bethesda. And this morning we want to pick up where we left off in verse 10, focusing on verses 10 through 16. John chapter 5, and just for the sake of context, I'll begin with the last sentence of verse 9. Let us hear the Word of God together. And that day was the Sabbath... The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing should come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us unite our hearts one final time and pray for God's help and His blessing as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we are all gathered here this morning eager to hear from Your Word. Your Word is the words of eternal life. And there is no one else to whom we dare turn to know truth, to know truth for our eternal soul. And so, Father, we pray that You would break open for us the bread of life, that You would instruct us in Your Word. Father, that You would rebuke us, reprove us by Your Word, that You would encourage us. We thank You for the Lord Jesus, the greatest gift You could give to us, who is the captain of our salvation, the author and finisher of our faith, who has run the race that was set before Him and has become victorious and now sits at Your right hand and He now gives grace to His people that we might run our race with endurance to receive the prize. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank You for His intercession. Thank You for His patience as we've just sung. What a friend He is to His people. What an unfailing friend. We pray this morning that we would know more of Him, more of His glories. We pray, Father, that You would form Christ within us. And we pray this morning for all who are strangers to Your grace, who are unsettled and undecided about who Christ is. We pray that today You would give them the knowledge 
of the glory of Christ. We pray that You would give them new hearts to trust savingly in His work on behalf of sinners. Draw near to us, Father. Instruct us. Give us attentive hearts and minds, we pray, and eager desires to be changed by Your Word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we return this morning to the account of the Pool of Bethesda. And this is where, if you remember two weeks back, our Lord has wrought this most gracious miracle on this man who had been ill for 38 years. Uh, With a word, Christ puts on display His own power, His pity, and His goodness towards sinners. And it was a miracle that was cause for all who witnessed it to rejoice in the Savior that God has given and to trust Christ. And yet, as we'll see this morning as we read, that's not how He is received by the Jews here. Verse 9 informed us of that key detail that He performed this miracle on the Sabbath. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you'll quickly discover that there is probably no other thing that drew out more hatred from the Jews towards Christ than Jesus' works done on the Sabbath. And this miracle brought with it something of a double offense to them. Because according to their tradition, the traditions of the elders, not only is it unlawful for someone to heal on the Sabbath, we see that for instance in Mark chapter 3 where they're watching Jesus to see if He'll heal a man, so that they can accuse Him. Not only is that unlawful in their mind, but more than that, and this is Jesus provoking them, after Jesus healed this man, He told this man to do something that He knew was explicitly a violation of their tradition. Namely, He told the man to take up his bed and walk. And so that's where we pick up this morning. That's the conflict that we want to consider this morning. And so let's begin with our exposition And then we will turn to our doctrine and application. So turning to our exposition, verse 10, the Jews therefore said to Him who is cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now these Jews here, it doesn't seem are just kind of your average citizen, just kind of informing the man of what is and isn't lawful. These are some who are in authority. As we'll see in verse 16, they are ones who have power to persecute Jesus. They have power to bring Him on trial, as it were. And granted, these Jews probably don't know at this point what has just happened to this man. And they don't know why He's carrying His bed. But when they see Him carrying His bed, they say to Him, what you're doing is not lawful. Okay, now that begs the question, by what standard is carrying His bed not lawful? Because that's a serious accusation. Did Jesus tell and command this man to do something that would break God's law? It's true that the Sabbath command given in the Old Covenant, the Fourth Commandment, is a command to His people to cease from unnecessary work, particularly as it has to do with their gainful employment. Okay? And it's true that in passages like Jeremiah 17, God told Israel not to bear a burden or carry a burden on the Sabbath. Okay? But in context, when Jeremiah is condemning them for carrying burdens on, Sabbath, on the Sabbath, that didn't have to do with things like carrying your mat from one place to another. That had to do with the context of 
carrying things for the purpose of buying and selling on the Sabbath. Okay. What this man is doing by simply picking up his mat and moving it to another place is not unlawful according to the law of God, but it is unlawful according to their tradition. Okay. And so, for instance, the Mishnah is a Jewish writing that we have that writes about or records the traditions of the elders. In the section under Sabbath in the Mishnah, they list 39 things that are expressly forbidden to be done on the Sabbath. And I'll leave it to you to read all 39 of them. But the very last one says, you may not take anything from one domain to another. So according to their tradition and that command, this man is a lawbreaker. Now verse 11, He answered them, He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, I want to try to come to the defense of this man a bit. There are some commentators who I think unnecessarily just assume the worst of this man and his intentions. And they assume that this man is just a traitor. He is trying to duck responsibility and get Jesus in trouble just to save his own skin. As though he's basically just saying, hey, I'm only doing this because this man told me to do it. Okay, don't, don't look at me, look at him. I don't think that's the most charitable interpretation, and there are reasons for why I, why I think that. I'll point out a couple of them. One is this. Literally, and the ESV actually reflects this translation. I think it's better than the, the New King James here. Literally, the emphasis would go like this if we were to translate it woodenly. He who made me well, that one said to me, take up my bed and walk. In other words, this man's emphasis is on the one who healed him. Okay? Who made him well. He's trying to give them an explanation for his actions. Not, I don't think, so much to get Jesus in trouble, but rather to fill them in on some key context that they are missing. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in his shoes. What would you do if you were just miraculous, miraculously healed after 38 years by a man and he told you to do something and all of a sudden someone else comes along and says, hey, you can't be doing that. I think you would protest a bit and say something like, look, I have just been visited by a messenger that is clearly sent by God. He told me to do this and I obeyed and here I am. It's very similar to how the man born blind in chapter 9 says to the religious leaders, if this man was not from God, he could do nothing. But it was obvious to this man that this man is from God and therefore he's to be obeyed. And so I think it's his intention to inform them that there has been something very extraordinary that has happened. And he is granted naively thinking that it would change their interpretation of what he's doing. Um, not so much that he's deliberately trying to get Jesus in trouble. Now, verse, verse 12. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, notice, they bypass the very thing that this man emphasized that should have arrested their attention. This man's response is, The man who healed me said this to me. But what they latch onto is who told you to take up your bed and walk? There's not even a 
What do you mean He healed you? On their part. They blow right past the healing part and they latch on to what is an affront to their legalism. Because they have already made up their mind. Their tradition has already so blinded them and convinced them that no matter what you say this man did, he cannot be a good man. And as it were, they basically ask this man, the patient, to bear witness against his own physician. And they demand of him, who is he? Either tell us his name or point him out. And I, I suspect they already knew at this point who it was, but they wanted testimony, official testimony, to bring charges against him. And verse 13 says, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Now, that's amazing. This man didn't even learn Jesus' name, the man who healed him. And very quickly, it seems, Jesus disappeared, as it were, somewhere amongst this crowd, unable to be identified because there was a multitude. No doubt to the frustration of these Jews who would really like this man to be able to point him out. And it's at this point that it's, it's very fascinating the way the, the narrative goes. At this point, the, this conflict could have ended. I mean, Jesus could have just stayed withdrawn. He could have just left, left the pool, left the area, and let things cool down a bit. But instead, on His own initiative, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found Him, the man, in the temple. So Jesus is the one who is again stirring the pot, if you will. And you think about this man, it's not insignificant that Jesus finds him in the temple. I think that's another good mark of this man's uh, character. It's very possible it had been 38 years since this man could enter the temple, and he makes it his first errand to give praise to God for the mercies of God shown to him while that mercy was still fresh on his mind. And so Jesus finds him in the temple and He says to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So, first of all, Jesus healed the man's body and now Jesus is addressing the man's soul. And He gives this man a twofold motivation to trust in the Lord and to walk in the path of righteousness. First, He persuades him, like Romans 12, by the mercies of God. Right? He says, see, you have been made well. That w- that's obviously obvious to the man. It's still on his mind. But Jesus makes a point to point it out. God has been gracious to you. Uh, so many others are still afflicted and yet you've been restored. And therefore, because of the mercies of God shown to you, sin no more. That should always be the heart of God's people to His mercies. That we resolve to not sin against such a gracious God. But then... Secondly, he gives him a second motivation. Sin no more, lest a worse thing should come upon you. And the way that Jesus words this indicates that this man's affliction was, was God's punishment for sin. Now, we're not told whether it was for some particular sin, perhaps a flagrant sin of his youth, or whether just for his sin in general. John doesn't tell us. But in either case, Now that He has been made well, Jesus cautions him. Be careful to guard your heart and to walk in the fear of God lest God come again with His punishing hand and bring to you something worse. 
And it's a very appropriate warning that Jesus gives to this man for for uh, multiple reasons. One reason that this is an appropriate caution is that while you think about it, while this man was infirmed in his body, his body physically prevented him from being able to even act outwardly on many sins. But just because his body wasn't able to act upon sin doesn't mean that that sin wasn't still in his heart. And now that he's been made whole, he has all the more reason to be watchful against temptation. But secondly, there's a second reason, namely that it's very common when someone is sick and afflicted to make many promises of what they will do if and when they get better and how they will reform their lives And yet, the moment they get better, how quickly they forget the resolutions they made. And so Jesus warns him here of the dangers of returning to sin after he has received such mercy from God. 38 years of affliction he's experienced. And you would think that that would be enough to scare one away from sinning. And yet, Jesus reminds him there is something far worse for the one who, after has been shown mercy, hardens his heart against God in apostasy. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Okay, now again, some read this as basically just a blatant, almost like a Judas betrayal. Um, just, just wicked betrayal on the part of this man. But again, I, I am persuaded that this man is not malicious in his actions, though he is naive. Okay? Um, both Matthew, Henry, and, and Calvin see this man as a man with pious intentions. They see this as a man who wants to give honor to the man who has healed him, and he probably is not thinking that it's possible that such a man could have any enemies, and therefore he unknowingly casts his pearls before swine. And one thing, pointing in that direction again, is notice that while they are obsessed with the matter of breaking the law, who told you to take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath, This man is obsessed not with the Sabbath-breaking, quote-unquote, but with the man who healed him. Notice their question is, who told you to break the Sabbath? Now, if this man were just a snitch, I think he would have said in verse 15, hey, it's Jesus, I found out after all, who told me to break the Sabbath. That's not what he says. He says, again, the second time in verse 15, it was Jesus who healed me. So it seems to me that this is a man who was assuming wrongly that they would be interested in learning from this Christ, learning from this man, and benefiting from Him, though granted He severely misinterpreted their motives in their hearts. And thus, verse 16, our final verse for this morning, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill Him because He had done these things on the Sabbath. How perverted were their hearts? How hardened are their hearts? When it says here, because He had done these things, I think that implies not only because He told the man to take up his bed on the Sabbath, but it also includes the miracle itself. They are not only persecuting Him, but they are desiring to kill the Lord. And for what? for doing good on the Sabbath when that's what the Sabbath is for. right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. 
And they are so blinded by, uh, so blinded to the true intention of the law that they actually think they would be honoring the Sabbath by killing the Lord of the Sabbath. And we'll pick up with Jesus' defense next week. But for now, that closes our exposition. Let's turn our attention now to our doctrine and application. And for time's sake, I've combined these again this morning. Doctrine, how does this text instruct us? What does it teach us about God and His ways and our duties? And also, how does that then apply and touch down practically for us in the Christian life? And I have two things by way of doctrine and application this morning that I want to draw out from this text. Number one is this. We learn from this text the prejudice and the hindrance of false tradition. Okay? We learn from this text the prejudice and the hindrance of false tradition. What is it that so set these Jews to be so prejudiced against the Lord? What is it that causes them to harden their hearts and to ignore the testimony of such a miraculous healing and instead to set themselves with such hatred against so good of a man? And we could name many things. Sin would be the broad category. We are all, all of us in this room included, we are all sinners by nature, and thus by nature we are all prejudiced against the light. But for these Jews in particular, sin had prejudiced them in a very specific way. Namely, false tradition and wrong thoughts about God and wrong interpretations of His Word had so engulfed their hearts and their minds that it actually kept them from seeing the glories of God incarnate. And this warns us about how deceptive false traditions can be. Theirs was a religious tradition. Their tradition, the tradition of the elders and their interpretation of the Old Testament which they claimed was an exposition of the Word of God and that they thought would be a help and an aid to help them follow the Lord, that tradition was the very thing that proved to be the thing that kept them from seeing Christ. Look down at verse 46 of this chapter. The very close of this chapter. Jesus says this to these religious leaders, these Jews. And you have to understand this would have been a very offensive thing to say to them. He says to them in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me. For He wrote about Me. But if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe My words? What He's saying there to the Jews is He's saying you claim to believe in Moses, and yet you are twisting Moses to persecute the very one that Moses spoke of. Paul wrote to Timothy about those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. So deceptive is the devil that he can use even a person's form of godliness as the very thing that keeps them from knowing the true power of godliness. He uses false religion, unbiblical traditions, in order to convince someone that they're in the right way. 
That they're in the path of godliness and uprightness when in reality, He has sold them a counterfeit. You think about Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Church of Christ. What, what do all of those have in common? The traditions of men that have been set above the Word of God and they have an appearance of godliness, an appearance of religiosity, but it is a religiosity that has actually made them hostile to the true godliness in Christ. And they have been trained by the devil without even realizing it. They've been trained to erect and to reinforce barriers that actually inoculate them against the true Christ and His Gospel. And with these Jews in the first century, their tradition had been so ingrained in them that Jesus will tell His apostles later in the Gospel of John, He says, the hour is coming when the Jews will kill some of you thinking they are offering service to God. And you ask, how, how can you get that far? How, can you, how do you get to that point? Well, how did they get to the point where they thought they were honoring God by crucifying their Messiah? Jesus said in Mark's Gospel, this people honors Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I'll give you one example of this just for our own sake, and then I want to make application. And I want to, I want to give an example that will hit home for us so that you, Christian, see how important this is. And it would be easy to use, you know, I've already mentioned Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it. It would be easy to use that as an example, right? Those people out there that we don't consider as Christian, um, it would be easy to do that. I want to talk about something that often falls under the broad umbrella of what is considered by many to be Christianity. Now, I'm convinced it's not true Christianity, but many, many people in our day think that it is. And it's what is become known as easy believism or cheap grace. Okay? Now, even as I say that, easy believism or cheap grace, most of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about and what I mean when I say that because many of you, including myself, come out of that context. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, the idea of easy believism is this. It's the general idea that's very prevalent today that Jesus came to die for us so that we can live however we want and praise God, we still get to go to heaven. And included in this tradition is an emphasis on God's holiness is lacking. The need for repentance and turning from sin is lacking. Uh, the phrase, God is loving and accepts us just the way we are is emphasized. Now, Christian, what is that? That's a tradition. Right? That, that is a form of doctrine that they have been instructed in and it is a religious tradition that millions of people today have been raised in. Okay, now listen to me. What happens when those people, those little sinners who are trained in that when they're little kids, what happens when those people grow up to be big sinners? And they have never doubted for a moment in their life whether God loved them and was for them? They've never had a question. They've never had an inkling in their mind of conviction or concern for their eternity. 
everything for them is just peaches and cream. Now, what happens when you, for instance, a true Christian, come along and you say to them, lovingly and out of concern, my friend, you actually have no grounds to be confident that you're a genuine Christian. And you start explaining to them what the Gospel is really about. And you tell them about repentance. And you tell them about the fruit of grace being manifested in the heart and the life. And you tell them about conviction of sin and mourning of sin and new affections that God gives us. You do that. You you expose them. And they're being exposed to the, the, the light of God's truth, right? And you think they should just give you a big hug and thank you for telling them. And yet, in reality, how do they usually respond? They get angry with you. They get angry with the verses that you show them. And they come up with all sorts of exegetical gymnastics to show you that that's not what that text means, and it's you that's twisting the Scriptures. And you're just a legalist. And you deny grace. And your God isn't loving. You see what's happened? Is their tradition that they were raised in, even though they claim it's rooted in the Bible, has made them allergic to what is actually in the Bible. And they are actually worse off than the pagan who hasn't had any Christian instruction to begin with because their Christian tradition has made the true Gospel odious to them. And just like the Jews here seek to persecute Jesus for challenging that, those raised in false traditions also will persecute genuine Christians who seek to bring that to their attention. Christian, make no mistake. Tradition either sets us closer to heaven or closer to hell. Traditions are not neutral. Now, this is where where I want to apply this to us. I could have gone all sorts of directions, and I wish I had time to do that. I'm just going to hit one particular group of people and area, okay? Parents. This applies to grandparents. This also applies to you even if you don't have children. Your training of the children in the church and things like that family members around you. Parents, make sure you are imparting to your children an accurate knowledge of God and not a counterfeit that will inoculate them against Christ. We read that this morning in Deuteronomy 4 where God reminds Israel, teach them, that is these statutes, to your children and your grandchildren that they may learn to fear Me and that they may teach their children. Parents, the view of God your kids will grow up with and their understanding of the Christ and the Gospel and their understanding of the Christian life is incredibly dependent on good Christian mom and dads. Moms and dads. For instance... I'll just give you a couple of examples. Some parents, and I'm not saying they necessarily do this on purpose, but it's just a reality. Some Christian parents are heavy on law in their parenting and they're light on Gospel. And the aroma of their parenting is more moralistic and more just kind of children obey these rules. 
That's what good children do. And if you don't, you get disciplined. And if you do, you get rewarded. Now, don't get me wrong. You know I believe in discipline. We need to discipline our children. But if that's all they ever hear, and they grow up thinking that good Christians are people who keep the Ten Commandments, you may be producing obedient and moral children, and that might be enough to keep them out of jail, but that's not enough to keep them out of hell. Because very possibly what you're actually producing is just little Apostle Paul's before his conversion. Right? And you're raising little children who in their minds, they, they think, I've got the greatest Christian pedigree there is. My parents trained me never drink, never smoke, never dress immodestly. Be a stay-at-home mom if you're a girl. Be a hard-working dad if you're, if you're a boy. And they think to themselves, I've done all those things. And unknowingly, you've created a person who is confident in their own righteousness who probably looks down condescendingly on others who haven't done as well, and they're not believing the Gospel. Now, they might say that they believe in Jesus, but in reality, they don't really think that they have very much need of Jesus. And truth be told, they're somewhat offended when they read what the Bible says about their righteousness. Christian parents, that's just one example. I'm not saying that's you. If, if the shoe fits, apply it. But Christian parent, if that's you... We have got to weave the bomb of the Gospel in with the law as we train our children. And in fact, the law can't even be rightly understood if it's not weaved together with the Gospel. We are not after merely obedient children or kids who don't bring shame upon their, their parents. We are after, by the grace of God, children who are strong Christians who have a true living union with God in Christ. Who aren't full of confidence in their own righteousness, but rather realize, yes, I know God's law is good, and He calls me to obey, but I know I can't obey apart from the cleansing power of Christ's blood applied to me, and apart from the sanctifying power of Christ's blood to empower me to obey. And therefore, I know how far short I fall of the law, from the law, obeying the law of God. And yet, by Christ's grace, He has made me new and He is transforming me from one degree of glory to the next. Those are the kinds of children we want who walk in the Gospel. Now, let me give one other example and I'll have to move on here for time's sake. I'll, I'll give the other, the other hand. On the other hand, there are parents who don't treat... Or, or who, who don't teach grace accurately. They teach their children, again, whether they realize it or not, a licentious grace. And perhaps as parents, they even model it before their children. By the way, how we live before our children is just as vital as what we teach our children. And these children are not taught that sin has consequences. They're not taught that trusting Christ leads to a desire to walk in a measure of obedience to Him and to fear the Lord. And as those kids get older, they begin to deal flippantly with the grace of God. And pretty soon, they begin to take God's grace for granted. And before you know it, they are abusing grace as a cloak for sin. All the while, looking back on mom and dad's example and teaching and thinking that they're fine 
And before you know it, they're that person that I mentioned who is angered that anyone would challenge them with the Word of God. Christian, let me just say this. I could go longer. We cannot put grace into the hearts of our children, but we can make every effort to ensure that they are receiving a biblical and robust Christian tradition from us as parents. Okay? We can do everything that's within our power to guard them from dangerous counterfeits that will eventually cause them to depart from the way of life because of our influence on them. Okay, that brings us to the second thing this morning. Second thing by way of doctrine and application. Secondly, we are instructed here regarding affliction, its causes, and its purposes. We're instructed regarding affliction, its causes, and its purposes. And I'm getting this from verse 14. Jesus says to this man, sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. And we get in this verse, and coupled with it, other verses in John, something of a theology of affliction. This text indicates that God does sometimes afflict people as uh, afflict people as a punishment for sin. Okay? And that's true for unbelievers like this man, but also it's true even of his own children. We have examples of that in the Scripture. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy after he sinfully des- uh, tried to offer unauthorized incense. Or David as a result of his sin, was afflicted in the death of his son. Or 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul tells the Corinthian New Testament church, some of you are sick and some of you have even died because they were abusing the Lord's table. This is what we would call God's corrective discipline. It's His rod inflicting temporal pain on His children to teach them the misery of sin and to teach them to walk more carefully in the future. Okay, that's, that's one thing. However, we need to be careful. While we don't want to deny that can't, God can and does send people afflictions on account of their sin, we also need to affirm that not all the affliction the believer experiences must therefore be attributed to God's punishment. Okay? So for instance, Job was a righteous man. Not that he was perfect or sinless, but he was upright. He walked with God. And his afflictions were not laid upon him because of a particular pattern of sin God was punishing him for. Rather, they were laid upon him to allow the devil to test him and to prove the genuineness of his faith. The same is true of the man born blind in John chapter 9. The disciples asked Jesus the question, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus' response was this, It is not because this man sinned or his parents that he was born blind, but that the works of God might be revealed in him. Okay, So we have to be nuanced. We have to thread the needle. It could be, Christian, when affliction comes upon you. It could be that God is afflicting me due to my backsliding. 
And like any good father, he's spanking the presumption and the foolishness of sin out of me. He loves me that much to actually cause me some pain, to show me the hurt and the misery of sin. And by the way, we ought to take heed lest we make God use an even more painful instrument. Calvin said that if we, if we don't learn by the first two stripes, God will often begin to bruise us as with mallets. And so if you think the affliction's hard now, listen to Jesus' words. Sin no more that nothing worse may come upon you. But, Christian, it could also be that these wounds do not at all flow from God's displeasure but are simply the gracious trials that our Father sends us to purify our faith and to prove His grace to us. But here's the thing, Christian. Whatever the reason, the Christian is to receive all affliction as from the hand of a gracious Father. Whether it is the rod, and God's bringing to my attention a pattern of sin I'm not dealing with, or whether it's just a loving Father knowing what I need, both of those fall under the umbrella of God's fatherly discipline in the sense of training me. The Father loves us so much that He trains us always into the likeness of His Son. He trains us to be more and more fearful of sin. Even His rod is gracious. It's a gracious rod. He knows how to deal with the meek and the compliant child, and He knows how to deal with the stubborn, stiff-necked child. And when we find ourselves afflicted, God is saying this to our souls, Christian, My child, sin no more. Walk with Me. Matthew Henry said that... Where did I put it? There it is. Matthew Henry said that sin no more is the word of every providence. When God afflicts me, He is telling me sin no more. And when He heals me, He is saying sin no more. And granted, God sometimes speaks sin no more to His different children with a different voice. Sometimes He says that to some of His children in a tender voice uh, simply to keep them in the way. And other times in a more firm voice to get them back in the way. Psalm 119.67 Before I was afflicted, then I went astray, but now I keep Your commandments. When God afflicts me and when He heals me, He is saying to me, walk before me and be blameless. And so I want to close by saying this, Christian, just two brief things. We should, as God's children, conduct ourselves in the fear of God as His children. Not viewing God as a harsh father or as one who is just prone to lose his his temper and and to suddenly just lose it with his children. God is infinitely better than any earthly father, especially in that regard. And yet, God loves his children such that he is not willing to forego the discipline they need. And, Christian, one motivation for our holiness and obedience is not wanting to provoke the frown of our father. We don't want to be the child who is constantly testing our Father's patience. And so, Christian, I don't know who you are, 
But let that be a warning to you who are toying with sin. And you're walking that line. Perhaps His rod has not yet fallen upon you. But Christian, listen to the Word of God and let the fear of God guide you back into where it is safe. Don't provoke God to use the rod upon you. Or perhaps there are some of you in this room, I'm not aware of it, no one else is aware of it, but you've already begun to experience God's rod. And He's disciplining you for a particular pattern of sin that you refuse to deal with. Christian, if that's you, don't make God discipline you with harder strokes. Humble yourself and learn the lesson and sin no more. But secondly, lastly, I want to say this. Not only the discipline of the Lord, but the mercy of the Lord should drive us to live as thankful children. Jesus wonderfully balances this. Before He threatens the discipline of God's rod to this man, He highlights the mercy of God. He says to him, verse 14, see, you are well. That's basically the same thing Romans 12 is saying. After Paul has recounted 11 chapters of the glories of God's grace and mercy in the Gospel, he turns to application and he says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Christian, God has done something far better for us than He did for this man's body. Really, truly, and infinitely better. The greatest temporal mercy is nothing in comparison to the mercy of eternal life. And being a recipient of the grace of God that takes away my sins. Matthew Henry said, the hospital where this man laid was a melancholy place, but hell is much more so. Christian, the fact that God has made us well from the affliction of sin should be the fuel in the furnace of gratitude that cause us to respond, Lord, let me sin no more. Walking not only in the fear of the Father's frown, but walking in an earnest desire for the Father's smile. Knowing I've been spared. Like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress who was delivered from the city of destruction so also my eyes have been opened to what my plight was in my sin and how great has God's mercy been to me and how tender has His love been for me in revealing Christ and His cross and His resurrection and humbling me for my sins and showing me that Christ is my only hope and therefore, let me walk carefully as one who has received mercy. Let me live in the presence of my God all the days of my life, and Lord, let me never depart from there. We sing that line in Come Thou Fount. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. We also sing prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And if you're a Christian, you hate the fact that you're prone to wander. You hate how that feels. We're prone to leave the God I love, but bind, Lord, my heart in love and thankfulness to You. 
Make it my chief desire to delight in the Lord my God. In the light of past mercies, in the light of future ones yet to come to pass, Lord, cause me to rejoice in what my God has done for my soul. And cause me to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel, for it is the least that I can do for all of His benefits. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts here. Father, cause us not to think about others. Cause us first and foremost to always apply Your Word to our own hearts. Allowing allowing it to search us and know us. To reveal whether there be any crooked and perverse ways in us. Father, we pray that You would help us in these things. We pray that You would help us in our understanding. Cause us to be well instructed in Your Word so that we might practically live before You as children correctly. Understanding what it means for You to be our Father. We pray, Lord, as it relates to our afflictions and illnesses and the various things that Your Word teaches us about those things that we would be equipped in our hearts and our minds to be searching and seeking to understand correctly Your providence toward us. Father, cause us to be quick to recognize Your disciplining rod. We pray that we would not be stubborn sheep, but we would be those who are pliable and compliant, who quickly respond and get back in the right way. Father, cause us to be those who are quick to obey. We pray, Father, for help as we train our children. As we see here the danger of wrong and false tradition that ends up usurping and silencing Your Word. We pray that we, especially as parents, would never be those who put a stumbling block in front of our children. We pray that they would lead them, that we would lead them to God, that we would lead them to a knowledge of Christ, both by instructing and modeling for them. Father, be gracious to our children, we pray, just as we pray that we would not knowingly put any stumbling block in front of them. We pray, Lord, that they would not stumble. We pray that they would see at a young age the beauties of the Gospel, the glories of Christ, Grab a hold of their young hearts, we pray, before sin takes any more hold. As we come to the Lord's table, Father, we pray that You'd bless us as Your people. We pray that at the table of the Lord, we would rejoice in Christ our Savior, that He who died has risen, and we proclaim His death until He comes again in glory. Father, minister to our needs, strengthen assurance, Strengthen faith. Humble us for our sins and lead us to the cross of Christ. We ask that You would be merciful to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.